You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. How are you, TJ? I'm fan-freaking-tastic. Excellent. (laughs) You know why? Why? Because I get to meet Miranda Lambert. I know. So tell the story, TJ. (laughs) I'm so excited. I mean, if you listen or as LD knows, I'm a huge fan of Miranda Lambert. And uh, so we're going to her show tonight. And I joined the fan club for a raffle for a chance to win a meet and greet pass. And I won. And I'm so stoked because now (laughs) I get to go and meet Miranda Lambert tonight. I wish I had anything even remotely that exciting. <laughs> I did I did eat um at the Cheesecake Factory last night, so that was pretty exciting. Again? Yes. Nice. We got a gift card. All it right. It's awesome. <laughs> that's rad. So I have lunch today. That's about that's about the most exciting stuff I have. Well there you so. go. I mean it can't all be exciting all the time. Well let's talk about a bad place to sit, which is in a beach bonanza in nineteen fifty nine. Yeah. I am the queen of that was segways. A, that was a weird segue, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm really happy that we're doing this episode because it means that I can stop talking about this because <laughs> this is my ever-loving nightmare. Just three weeks of plane crashes. Yeah. It's, ugh. Yeah. I know. This has not been fun for you. It has not. I have upped my Xanax, but... It'll be all right. <laughs> so for the audience that maybe doesn't know why you have such a fear of planes and flying, do you want to maybe fill them in? Yeah. I had always been afraid of airplanes. Like it was just, I've never been a fan, but I used to be a smoker and I moved to New York City on September the 7th and I was supposed to move to uh, a little place on 13th and 6th. But they were redoing the floors. And so I had to find other accommodations. And so I got a hotel on 57th and Lex. And you kind of had a choice because the building was really tall. So you could either go down like, you know, put your clothes on and go down like 38 floors and stand on the street and have a cigarette. Or you can go like, you know, 10 floors up and go to the roof. And so I decided that's what I was going to do because I was not in the mood to put on pants this morning. So I went went up... Wait a minute, so you went to the roof with no pants on? No, I was still wearing my PJs. Oh, I see. Like, I didn't have to look like a proper human if you went up on the roof. So I went up on the roof, and I was I having see. a cigarette, and I was enjoying this, be- like, it was a Tuesday. It was beautiful. The sky was blue. Like, it was getting close to my birthday, so I was pretty excited. And I was having a cigarette, and I was just kind of turning around. And I turned around, and I saw the second plane hit the World Trade Center, and then it just, it, 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 it scared me. It, and, like, the whole world changed, and that image still sticks with me. And so, like, I still have the memory of seeing all the the paper the days after, like, oh, the, the missing posters of these people that were just trying to hold on to this hope. And 
I had only been in the city for four days, so I I didn't know anyone. I didn't have anyone. I didn't. I I, I had nothing, and so I wandered. And like I said, I was a smoker, so I actually went down on September 11th to Times Square, and I laid down in the middle of the street. Whoa! And I watched the news ticker. And well, there were no cars. There were no people. Right. There was nothing in Times Square. Nothing. There was nothing and no one in Times Square. I feel like that alone would be. It was eerie. Uh, it was such an eerie feeling. It was like the beginning of the movie Vanilla Sky, where he's just running and he can't find anyone. Right. And um, I found out why they call it a news ticker is because it ticks. <laughs> oh. Like the when each letter hits the edge of the the machine. Oh yeah. It went. So I could actually hear that in Times Square. Wow. And then about a day later, like the wind shifted and you could, the smell came. Oh. And so from that day on, flying has been a real horror for me. Right. Understandably so. And it's just, it's, you never know what's going to happen. You're not in, in control at all. And it's, it's, it's the worst feeling in the world. Right. Well, I'm sorry to make you dredge all that up. I just thought. It might add some context for our listeners that yeah. may not understand just how terrified and how, why this is such an upsetting subject for you. Yeah, and it, I added a story at the end that makes it even worse oh, for lovely. me. So I was like doing a form of self-torture. So you'll see that later on in the episode. So. Oh, lovely. I, I love when you purposefully destroy wreck yourself. <laughs> yeah, destroy myself. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we'll bring you out of it for now. Okay. And let's uh, get to our, our last story on the day the music died, eh? All right. So today we're talking about Buddy Holly. Uh, probably, well, we found out that Richie Valens was the most successful person on the tour and probably the biggest name, but everybody kind of associates this crash with Buddy. Like it's peop in the press, people call it the Buddy Holly crash. And he was Richie Valens was the biggest name on the ticket. He had like the most hits. He was the most successful. He was on track for being like the most successful person on the tour. Wow. Yeah. All right. So but uh, let's talk about let's talk about Buddy Charles Harden Holly. And I'm, I'm going to point out that it's spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y. And there's a reason for that, because everybody knows, knows him as H-O-L-L-Y. And God, I hope I kept it in. Because I did some major butchering of this episode. Oh, it, yeah. It was 19 pages. And I will go ahead and cite the source that it, this is this main source for my research comes from Buddy Holly, a biography by Ellis Amburn. And so Charles Harden Holly was born September 7th, 1963. And he was born in Lubbock, Texas. And he was actually born in the family house. Ooh, home birth. Yeah. That's actually not that uncommon, though. <laughs> like I know, but days. like... In those days, it wasn't. But like now, can you think of like me giving birth in the pod loft? <laughs> I mean, I really hope you wouldn't, but <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I don't think you ever have to worry about me giving birth. I don't know. That's coming back a big time these days, these home births. He was named after both of his grandparents. So that's where the Charles and the Harden come in. Uh, and he was born into a musical family during the Great Depression, and he learned to play guitar alongside his siblings. And his elder siblings were Larry, who were born in 1925, and Travis, who was born in 1927, and Patricia Lou, which is such a Southern name. 
<laughs> and she was born in 1929. So when Buddy was born in 1963, Larry, which would be the sibling that I think he kind of leans on the most, he was already 10 years older than Buddy. And Patrick and Patricia were nine and seven, respectively. So like he was the baby of the family. And they often said that they would spoil him because he was the baby of the family, which I think is really sweet. What? That's common. <laughs> I think I was spoiled, and I'm the baby. My sister thinks I was spoiled, and I'm the baby. <laughs> so the Hollies were a poor, decent family, but they were also hard-shell Baptists, which makes sense because they're in Lubbock, Texas in the 30s. Right. Uh, Buddy would be the first of them to graduate from high school, and his father, L.O. Holly, was a laborer and would sometimes earn as little as $12 a week from going job to job toiling as a cook, carpenter, construction worker, car salesman, and clerk in a men's clothing store. So the family was pretty poor. So what year was this? 1936, when he was born. Are you looking up how much $12 is? Yeah. So $12 a week in 1936 would be the equivalent to $220 in 2019 per week. So if you imagine you had a family of, what, five? It was Larry, Travis, Patricia, Buddy, Charles, Ello, and his mom. So six. So six. So a family of six living on $220 a week. So that is well below the poverty line. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing was that the Great Depression lasted a lot longer in places like Texas than it did in other parts of the country, like more industrial parts of the country. So certain places, I think like Detroit, bounced back pretty quickly because they had a big industry. Pittsburgh right. bounced back. New York had the Wall Street. So... You know, they, they they had a bustling industry. And so places out west that didn't have really an established industry yet, I think the Great Depression just lasted longer. Right. But also you have to think, like, what, what do they need? They need food. Right. And maybe gas. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Because they don't have the things that we have now. Like, like you have to pay for your streaming services, for your food, your, you know. I'm trying to think of other things that we so have So many now. things. But we have to pay for what health insurance is probably insane. I don't even know if they had health insurance in the 30s. I don't know that they had health insurance, but still doctors. Yeah, but doctors, health care. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of things we have now could, some of it can be construed as luxury, but, you know, in general. Oh, absolutely. I don't need Disney Plus, Netflix, and Hulu. No. <laughs> but I want them. Yeah. Still, $220 to feed a family of six. Is not enough. And clothe them and, yeah, that's not enough. I think I've spent $250 on groceries on one trip for me and Will and the cats. Jeez. So, I get it. Yeah. Um. So, when he was little, his mom said that his given name of Charles was too long for him because he was such a tiny, they make a real big point in this book to explain to you how small he actually was. So, she said that his name was too long for him and so she nicknamed him Buddy. And that's how we got his name. Oh, cute. The Hollies were an immensely musical family. The elder Holly brothers actually would perform in local talent shows trying to raise money for the family. And on one occasion, Buddy joined them on the violin. And since he couldn't play it, his brothers actually greased the strings. And so it wouldn't make any sound. <laughs> and And they actually won that talent show. And then in, uh, in 1941, when he was five... He actually won a $5 singing contest at the Country Line Rural School accompanying himself on the violin. So I wonder if they greased the strings that time. It's just him like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine probably at that point he learned to play. 
at five? I don't know. Dang. I don't know. I, I don't know either if he could act. It, it didn't say if he actually could play the violin at that point or not. So, But he accompanied himself on the vi- I don't know. Yeah. I got nothing. I got nothing. Later that same year, on December 7th, World War II began. And both of his brothers, Larry and Travis, who Travis is my brother's name, so that was confusing, <laughs> joined the Marines and they went off to the Pacific to fight the Japanese. But he entered the first grade in 1943 at Roscoe Wilson Elementary School and quickly found that he didn't like to study, but he also didn't need to. When he brought home his first report cards, it was full of A's. It was the first of the Holly children to excel scholastically. Uh, and in this time, like Travis went off to war, and I, I'm uncertain where he actually got the guitar. It sounds like it was gifted to him, but he kept it throughout the entire war while he was fighting and he actually brought that home because he was the first one to be sent back home from the war and so he took this guitar and he taught buddy how to play and while it's not expressly stated his other brother larry also made it home safely from the war so good news on that count later buddy got his own guitar and acoustic epiphone and it made a clean sad sound Buddy progressed on the banjo and the mandolin, applying a driving attack on any instrument he took up. His singing was equally spirited. I love and, the mandolin. And you're going to love this. At this point, Hank Williams Sr. became Buddy's musical model. Nice. Which I don't think is a bad person to look up to. Nope, not I at mean, all. Except for the alcoholism, which, like, well, later killed him. So Yeah, there's mm. that. I mean... There'll be an episode. Don't worry. We'll get more into it. Yeah. This is about Buddy. We'll get to Hank. (laughs) We'll get to Hank soon. Don't worry. And like I was saying, like, Buddy really loved his brother Larry. And Larry did kind of dote on him. And he let Buddy tag along on his outings. But Larry, of course, being 10 years older than Buddy, was far more interested in chasing girls. And he soon found and married the woman of his dreams, Maxine. And from age 10 to 12, Buddy was actually the star of his class. And he was cute and lovable. And he was kind of a show-off. And he used to play the game. I loved this story. Uh, he There used to be a playground director that he would play canasta with. And her name was Louise Caton. And he would beat her every time. And so one day she got super frustrated at him. And she was like, how do you manage to beat me all the time? And he said with a laugh, I can see your hand. In your big black sunglasses. <laughs> so he was like cheating every time. I love that he just outright told her. Like I can see your hand. <laughs> see me I would have just been like. Mm, psychic. <laughs> in 1949 he entered J.T. Hutchinson Junior High School. And met Bob Montgomery. And that name's going to be. Th- these, these following names are going to be pretty important. Later on in life. Uh, Don Guess and Jerry Allison, precocious musicians who played an important role in his life for years to come. A multi-talented youth just a year younger than Buddy, Don Guess could play a stand-up bass and a steel guitar and was beginning to write songs. Bob Montgomery could play a guitar and sing country and western and rhythm and blues. And so the kind of musical landscape happening right now is that R&B is the precursor of rock and roll and it was a creation of black musicians, and it was known as race records. Buddy was radically prejudiced. He was he was an ex- he was racist. That's plain and simple. In his youth, 
but he actually overcame it. It was in Buddy's adolescence as he listened to R&B on KWKH from Shreveport, Louisiana, that he began to question his racial intolerance. How could he be any better than anyone who left him so far behind musically in the dust, the simplistic hillbilly and bluegrass music? Blacks were cool. Their music was dirtier than sin with titles like, you're gonna love this. It's not the meat, it's the motion. 60 Minute Man and a big long sliding thing. Aw yeah. <laughs> All those are song pew, titles. Pew. <laughs> if you could pick that up. Pew 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 pew. I can't whistle, so that's how I do the little cat call. How is it that neither of us pew. can whistle? I don't know. I try can... whistling. That's it. That's all I got. It was a bunch of wind. Okay, you're not even that's not even a tempt. There you go. That's, that's closer. It's better than like just blubbering your mouth like a motorboat. I'm so sorry, listeners. I can't. I've never been able to whistle. Well, that's why there's the few few. <laughs> Anyways, back to Buddy. Back to Buddy. Unlike the segregated whites at the Tabernacle Baptist, African-Americans knew the score and he actually wanted to be like them, which is really forward thinking in like the 40s. In 1950... They were in eighth grade, and Buddy and Bob scandalized half of Lubbock by singing a notorious country and Western novelty song called Too Old to Cut the Mustard at a PTA open house program. Oh, here it is. Okay. Too old, too old, he's too old to cut the mustard anymore. He's getting too Got too old. He's too old to cut the mustard anymore. I like it. I like it. When I was young, I had a lot of pep. I could get around, didn't need no help. But now you're old and getting gray. The people all look at you and say, Too old. Too old. He's too old to cut the mustard anymore. He's getting too old. He's done got too Oh, he's too old to cut the mustard anymore. <laughs> this is hilarious. I like a fiddle. I love a fiddle. And a mandolin. And a you could jump just like a deer. But now you need a new landing gear. You could jump a picket fence. But now you're lucky if you jump an inch. Too He's too old to cut the mustard anymore. He's getting too old. He's done got too old. He's too old to cut the mustard anymore. There's a little sample for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy. We were laughing through the whole thing. Clearly, you can tell how much we enjoyed it. So I, I guess the reason why it was like scandalous was because all they're basically saying the PTA members are are too old. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I can understand why, why it would be scandalous because I guess they're calling the PTA members a little too old. That's <laughs> that's what I'm getting from that. But it's a funny song. I really like it. It's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Allison was a transfer student from Plainville, Texas, who was just a grade below buddy, actually heard them singing the song and remembers being really impressed by just his ballsy nature and his guitar playing. Nice. 
Uh, Jerry had been playing the drums since the fifth grade. And one day he asked Buddy to come home with him after school and play Fats Domino's records going to the river. When Buddy heard the rock and roll, he saw his future and it was like the heavens opened up. Uh. Or for (laughs) people that aren't religious, it was like when Harry Potter got his wand. Uh. It was the exact same sound. Heaven opening up (laughs) and Harry Potter getting his wand (laughs) is the exact same sound. TJ, can you can you can you do the sound? Uh. Yep, that. You like that I can just be your sound effect machine on cue? <laughs> I do. Like on demand. <laughs> if Make they, the spooky sound. Make the heaven sound. <laughs> Make this sound. If they ever remake Police Academy and I get to be the casting director, you're totally in. Yes. <laughs> How is your police at Sirens? Uh, I work on it. Okay. So if you read the book, Buddy Holly, a biography by Ellis Amber, there's a pretty salacious section in that book which kind of covers Buddy Holly's more adult side, but it gets pretty graphic. And I'm talking about... Scandalous. If you read Stephen King's novel, It, oh, there's a whole part where they kind of seal their friendship pact that they leave out of both of the versions of the movie. Apparently, that was a thing in Texas. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, good. If you do, it's okay to be horrified. I'm not going to talk about it here, but let's just say that Buddy Holly was a saucy boy. This is a family show. Yeah. Mostly. Sometimes. He became sexually adventurous, a moral outlaw in his times. And in his teen, Buddy began to disobey his Christian parents by staying out late, drinking, smoking, shoplifting, gambling, and carousing with immoral women. (laughs) That was my favorite line from the book. (laughs) I'm glad that you quoted it directly because that is just brilliant. (laughs) Carousing with immoral women. I love it. So it was about that time that Buddy and some of the local boys would start shoplifting and they would stop for gas at a service station and then they would load up on food while the attendant was outside pumping gas. Larry actually started noticing that some of his musical instruments started disappearing from the house when Buddy realized that they could be hawked for pocket money. When a banjo worth $10 couldn't be found, Larry wondered if Buddy had hawked it. But decades later, after he had become a legend, actually turned up in a storage room in the home of Buddy's parents. But they actually sold that at auction for a tremendous price. I imagine. But Buddy would actually pawn off every other instrument around the house. Larry said that he had a large mandolin that was the cutest thing that you had ever seen. It was one of those like gourd-shaped ones with different colored wood and he could play it. Ooh. But Buddy couldn't. <laughs> that mandolin disappeared. How rude. He had a, a Steiner fiddle and it was a really pretty one and Larry could play it, but Buddy couldn't and that disappeared. Uh, he hawked one every time he needed some money and his mom and dad were so poor that they couldn't help him any, so... So he just stole everybody else's stuff and hawked it. Yeah, if they if he couldn't play the instrument, he would just totally steal that one. And <laughs> so rude. <laughs> I know. But Buddy did find his way back to the straight and narrow as he was baptized by Ben D. Johnson at the old Tabernacle Church. And I was trying to find the year for that, but it looks like he was about 13 to 15 when he got baptized. So, All right. Uh, In 1951, when Buddy was 15, he was at his final year at Hutcherson Junior High. He came home from school and he told his mother that he needed glasses. His mother's response, by her own description, was scatterbrained. He didn't talk a lot. He was a quiet boy and I didn't pay him any mind, she said. A few days later, he asked again for glasses and his mother again did nothing. All of her other children had needed glasses, but like 
she would take them to the optometrist and they, they would basically say they don't need them as badly as the school nurse would explain. And she thought that it, that buddy would turn out the same way. And the third time he mentioned it, she finally paid attention. She said, why do you think you need glasses? And he said, because the school nurse examined my eyes and told me so, he said. And so she took him to the optometrist and revealed that his vision was 2800. I don't know what that means. In both eyes. Uh, normal vision is 2020. Right. 2800. That, that doesn't right. even seem like a right... 2,800. Oh, I see. But still, 800 seems like that shouldn't even be a number. Well, not not that it shouldn't be a number, but a number associated with eyesight. Yeah, so after the test optometrist turned to Miss Holly and said that this boy needs glasses pretty badly, and he should have had them several years ago, and that's how Buddy got his iconic glasses. There you go. It wasn't just for show. It was actually so he could see things, which is crazy to think because, like, he was a really good student. Maybe that's why he didn't like to study, though. Like, maybe he just retained information. Because it could be painful. Right. Yeah. So around 1951, Elo Holly was actually in charge of a construction crew that was putting up a house in Lubbock. And one of the young men working for him was a carpenter's helper named Jack Neal, who was also a gifted musician. And he could play the banjo, the guitar, the steel guitar, and piano. And his favorite singer was Hank Williams. But he also loved Lefty Frizzell, Webb Pierce, and Ray Price. And one day at a at one day at work during a lunch break, Jack took his guitar from his car and joined the rest of the construction workers on the porch of the house that they were building. He started to play, and Ello walked over to him and stood by him and just kind of listened to him. He turned over to Jack and was like, my son plays the guitar, and it sounds like y'all ought to work together. All right, then. Yeah. So Jack met Buddy that evening and was immediately intrigued with his guitar playing, and the pair sang some country and western songs, a couple of gospel songs, and discovered that they actually sounded really good as a duo. And that's a period of musical growth that kind of marked the beginning of Buddy's dreams of becoming a professional musician. So now the seed has kind of been planted. So he's got this like musical family, this musical background, a family that does kind of encourage him, a big brother that gives him the tools to learn. And and now he's found kind of a kindred spirit in Jack and his father's accepting of what his son is doing. A big brother who gives him the tools to learn and whom he steals instruments to hawk from. Don't we all need that sibling to <laughs> steal from? I'm sorry. That just still irks me. Honey, don't you be hawking my guitars. I used to steal my brother's portable radio. Well, like it was, I say portable radio. It was like a Walkman, but it had like one dial on it. So you can pick up <laughs> FM radio stations. Yeah. It wasn't, there was no tape deck. There was nothing. And I would constantly steal that from him. I had one of those. I stole my sister's CDs all the time. Well, also growing up, my brother was five years older than me. And so you can see it. Like, if you don't know me and my brother's relationship, you can go back and listen to the Pat Denizio episode. That was pretty much our relationship. So hopping back, Neil was actually a lot of fun. And he was only two years older than Buddy. And so he really liked the outdoors. And so did Buddy. He would They, they would go and they would explore... Lubbock, Texas, they had this big sprawling area, and I did not leave this part in because it was kind of graphic, but basically they would go hunting. Yeah. And, yeah, just doing normal Texas stuff from the 50s, shooting things. Fair enough. Buddy and Neil would practice their music as hard as they play. Both were passionate, compulsive aficionados of the guitar, and Buddy's style was unique. 
In an interview with Philip Norman, Neil explained, I played rhythm, but he played lead. We'd go out to the cafes on the other side of the tracks and just sit and listen. They would mostly serve barbecue, which we really liked. And he'd say, Jack, I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be in the limelight. But I want people to remember the name Buddy Holly. And don't worry, we, we will. In 1952, he turned 16 and reported for his first day of school at Thomas J. Lubbock High School, which was named after Texas's Civil War heroes. By the spring semester of his sophomore year, which was, his school was uh, 1950 and 1953, he wrote a paper in school stating that he wanted to become a professional country and western singer, but he was realistic enough to know that the chances were slim. Nikki Sullivan, later one of the crickets, was already a distant admirer of Buddy's, and in high school saw him perform during lunch hour, singing Hank Thomas's country and western hit, Wild Side of Life, and Lloyd Price's R&B classic, Laudy Miss Cloudy. Toward the end of 1953, he began to grow, and he really grew. Remember I was talking about how like small he was, that his, his name was too big for him? Right. Yeah, that changed. How tall did he get? I'll get to that. Okay. Because it includes one of my wishes. Oh. Um, growing up was hard on Buddy's scholastic record, too. In the last week of his semester, he was expelled from plain geometry. I probably would have been, too. Hey, geometry is hard. I was good at math, except for geometry. I almost failed that class. Nope. I, I, I suck at math and... <laughs> like if someone tells me how old they are, I was like, oh, well, I was born in 1962. I'll have to pull out my calculator and go 2020 minus 1960. Oh, okay. You're blah, blah. I can't do it in my head either. <laughs> no, no. You give me algebra. You give me trig. You give me calculus. Got it. Geometry, for whatever reason, could not work it out. But he was also derelict in his biology assignments. And he was actually expecting to flunk out. So he borrowed his dad's truck and gave a new meaning to the phrase hell on wheels. In a single day, he totaled both the windshield and the hood of his father's truck. And a few days later, on his way to an interview for a drafting firm, he crashed into a Chrysler and de destroyed the front half of Holly's car. So he just was like, oh, no, totally being <laughs> Billy Joel, just like running into things. Oh, no. But he actually got that job and he started drawing blueprints for panhandle steel. So that's a pretty good job. Around this time, he considered electrical engineering as a profession. During the last two years of school, he dreamed of becoming a recording artist, but was enough of a realist to know that the chances against this happening were overwhelming. And that being said, he thought of either becoming a draftsman or an electrical engineer would be something reasonable to fall back on, which is, uh, that's smart. Like, pursue your dream, but have a backup plan just in case, like something that you love to do. And Buddy would actually work every angle he possibly could to break into a local radio station. He boldly invaded the station KSEL one day and informed a startled employee that he wanted to see Ben Hall, who was the DJ who was taking the 1 p.m. to, uh, yeah, the 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. shifts. And he actually impressed Ben with his moxie. Hall was a singer songwriter and he invited Buddy to perform with him at local sports arenas where occasionally programs were held. Their first gig together, he arrived carrying an electric guitar and wearing a large white cowboy hat. Buddy or the other guy? I think Buddy. Okay. Weldon Myrick, an outstanding young steel guitarist who had played with Jim Reeves, which is impressive, by the time he was 16, 
performed with Buddy and Jack Neal that night, and the gig went so well, he actually frequently used Buddy as a backup instrumentalist. In 1953, the entire staff of KSEL bolted and moved to KDAV, and here's something interesting. They established the first all-country and western radio station. Cool. Maybe we'll have to do an episode on KDAV one day. There you go. You'll love that. That'll be your episode. Yeah. But he had his heart set on appearing on KDAV's popular Sunday party, which was hosted by station owner Dave Pinkston, whose professional name was Pappy Dave Stone. Pappy Dave. Okay. Yeah. Stone once explained that his surname was too hard for callers to the station to pronounce, so he dropped the first syllable of his name and changed Stun to Stone. So he dropped the pink and just kept it as Stone. So that's kind of, I don't know where Pappy came from, I guess, because he's the daddy of the radio station. I think Dave Pinkston was is a fine name, but okay. So Buddy and Jack were still doing morning kitty shows, which regularly were scouted by KDAV, assistant manager, High Pockets Duncan. And I tried to find his real name. I could not. He is literally just known as High Pockets. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. It's got character. It does. Uh, in the later part of September 1953, High Pockets auditioned him, and they were singing a duet at KDAV Studios and described their music as country and western with a little upbeat or rockabilly, as it would shortly be known. So rockabilly hasn't really been invented yet, said with a question mark. I think this is a time where it's becoming itself. Does <laughs> If that makes sense. Like it's becoming a thing now because you have people mixing that country western with the R&B rock. So, yeah, this is the time when it's becoming a thing. Yeah. And a genre. And Buddy would really kind of embrace that rockabilly sound too. So you have a beat of your own, High Pockets told Buddy. You are determined to be a star. He offered to host Buddy's radio debut, The Buddy and Jack Show, and that went on the air November 8th, 1953, opening with Hank Williams, You're Cheating Hard. <gasps> Such a good song. Shall we play it? Eh, let's play a little bit of it. Okay. Let's play like 30 seconds of it. Okay. to sleep but sleep won't come the whole night through your cheating heart will tell on you when tears come down like so yeah so that opened their first show yep that's so cool then yeah it's a good song it's a great song the newly discovered pair received fan mail almost immediately. Their fans wrote out the titles of the songs they wanted to hear them sing on air. Like, so fans actually, like, took the time to sit down and write a handwritten note and send it to the radio station. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that. people, I mean, there was really not another way to do that. I mean, you could, I guess you could, call, could you call in at that point, I suppose, yeah. if you had a, well, telephones, if you had a phone, <laughs> um, being a country music fan, you should know the year that the phone was invented. Why does one mean the other? Back in 1876, an old boy named oh, yeah. Bell. 
Well, I know with the contraption that uh, we know so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I <laughs> sing that song too, which is sad. Um, yeah, but it wasn't always like everybody didn't have their own phone line until later. This was the fifties, not yeah. the not the twenties. I think everybody had a phone, just about. I think it was party lines well into the sixties. Yeah, but you still had a phone. Yeah, I guess. But still. <laughs> letters are nice and you know yeah now it's emails if even that and then our fans that like to send us notes as they listen to us on instagram or I love facebook that. or twitter i love it yep so now they're hit at kdav and buddy and jack felt free to hang out there teaching themselves everything there was to know about broadcasting and recording equipment and listening to the station's extensive record collections you know, you have to imagine like a kid that loved music as much as Buddy did, that had to be like a dream come true, just to have access well, to any record that he wanted to listen to. I would love that. Are you yeah. kidding me? My and neighbor, it was all vinyl, too. Oh, my God. My neighbor has the best den in the world, and I want one. It's basically just a music cave, and it's just surround... Like, every wall is covered in either some form of a stereo equipment or a wall of records. And it's my favorite place in the whole world. <laughs> That's why I like our living room, because it, it is a shrine to film. Yes. So High Pockets and Ben Hall always greeted them warmly and made them feel at home. Dave Stone was another ardent advocate of Buddies, and he recorded the duo on acetate on November 10th, 1953. Uh, but he played lead guitar, and Jack sang... I saw the moon crying last night, and I hear the Lord calling for me. So those are the two songs that they actually recorded. Oh, cool. But Neil had a girlfriend and was serious about her, and he was also holding down a full-time job as an electrical contractor. And all that was kind of absorbing most of his time and interests. And eventually he got married and moved to New Mexico, so Buddy lost his partner on uh, KDAV. But he teamed up again with Bob Montgomery, his old friend, from T.J. Hutchinson Junior High, and he sang with him on the Sunday party. And the Sunday party was basically just kind of a jam session. It was basically for anybody who wanted to show up and pick, said Sonny Curtis, a multi-talented musician from Meadows, Texas, which is a small town about 30 miles south of Lubbock. So people would drive a, a good distance to be a part of the Sunday party. Yeah, just go play. Yeah. I love open jams they can be fun sometimes yeah and it was being broadcast so that was kind of cool so it was yeah. you get something fresh and new every single time you listen to it right and you might hear six artists one sunday and then there'd be a completely different set the next week so it's just if you had the time and the tenacity and you wanted to sing into the mic you were welcome and sunny remembers broadcasting with buddy and bob singing duets with uh, ben holland and sometimes doing solos Weldon Myrick turned into a real hot steel guitar player, was also around on Sunday parties. And Weldon, I think, does a lot of recordings on all the old classic country records that we hear. Okay. So maybe we'll have to jump into who Weldon was because... Put him on the list. We'll put him on the list. And you ask me about how tall was Buddy. Yeah. By the time he was 17, he had grown to 5 feet 11 inches. Okay, that's not that tall. Um, I'm 5'2", so for me, it's well, a for, giant. For you, that's a giant, but, but I know guys that are like 6'10". 
Oh, so do I. <laughs> I actually know someone who is seven two. So see, and I don't like standing next to them because it looks like a visual joke. <laughs> Fair enough. But here's the thing: he only weighed 145 pounds. Well, yeah, he's kind of a string no. Bean. I wish to be that. Oh, jeez. I, I weigh seven pounds more than Buddy Holly, and I am nine. 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 nine I told shorter. you I can't do math. Nine inches shorter. I'm I was just waiting to see how long it took you to figure that out. <laughs> It's, it's an art form watching me try to do math in it my really head. It really is. It was, it was kind of adorable watching her try to figure out 11 minus 2. Look, I, I am so smart in like every other subject. <laughs> I can do science. I can do literature. You put math in front of me and I will cry. Clearly. You don't have to be good at everything, kids. He's tall now, and he started his junior year of high school, and he and Bob Montgomery told Dave Pappy Stone that they were ready for their own radio show. I mean, this kid had major cojones. Like, he was just like, this is what I want, and you should give it to me. And people like it. Pappy was really impressed by this kid just being like, I want my own show. And, And there is an old saying that fortune favors the bold. So... It's true. He auditioned... Buddy and Bob and pronounced that they were very good and he booked them into their own 2.30 p.m. 30-minute segment on KDAS um, on the Sunday party. And it was called The Buddy and Bob Show and it went on the air in late 1953. So like he just was like, I want my own show. And then he auditioned and they're like, sure, it's yours. Yeah, they're like, okay. Okay. (laughs) I had a bit of an ulterior motive, Stone later admitted. As Lubbock High School students, Buddy and Bob were sure to increase the audience among the youths who demanded raunchy, like, dirty, raunchy songs, which is kind of what Buddy and Bob were doing. And some of the songs they sang were sexually explicit R&B tunes like Work With Me, Annie, which clearly describes the couple in the throes of passion with the man instructing the woman to give him plenty of meat. I feel like we need to pull that up. Hang on. Whoa. Uh, let me see if I can find an, uh, yeah. a copy of Work With Me, Annie, that we can play for you guys. Yeah. Okay, so the the version that I found was Hank Ballard. Or should we do Snooky Pryor? Snooky Pryor. All right. I like that name. Oh, this is dirty.
that was a version of work with me, Annie. Um, maybe just that we've been so disenchanted and like given things like Game of Thrones, it doesn't seem that salacious now, does it? Not really, but back in the day. Yeah. So they would perform songs like that. And Stone said, believe me, they didn't any more than get on that show and get it started when the phones would start ringing off the wall. So like they were super popular and they were bringing a listening crowd to the radio station. So that made them incredibly happy. Which is good. Yeah. That's what radio stations want. Okay. So now, this has never really happened before on an episode of Rock and Roll Heaven. So I feel like history is being made right now. What do you mean? Because we have a crossover. A crossover? Yes. What do you mean? Because when Roy Orbison heard Buddy on KDAV, it altered his life. At this time, Roy actually had his own TV show, but he was convinced that he would never succeed because he wore glasses. And after he met Buddy, he thought, if this guy wears glasses and is trying to make it big, maybe I can too. Yeah, it was a glasses thing. Yeah, but he already had his own TV show. So he was already being successful. Yeah, but not not really. Because Orbison later recounted that Buddy was a very bright and dedicated kid. He wasn't uppity, as we would say in the business. He wasn't flashy. He could tell jokes, and we had a relationship that really developed. Buddy helped Roy with lead structures on some of the songs Roy was trying to write at the time. And it was Buddy who showed Orbison the lick that would become so popular years later when Roy recorded Pretty Woman. And I'm assuming they're talking about that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Like right. That, 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 yeah. And that almost like slapping sound. This one? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So Buddy kind of gave that lick to him. That's cool. Yeah. All right. All right. That's a true crossover, I guess. Yeah. High Pockets offered Buddy and Bob some sage advice after he learned that they had been providing free entertainment for a Lubbock man who invited them to play at his parties. They had eaten all they wanted, but the man paid for nothing. That party boy is using you, High Pocket said. We always get fed, said Buddy. Look, said High Pocket. I'm willing to be your manager. Fine, said Buddy. What does that mean? You'll need to beef up your act and get someone on base. Maybe Larry Wellborn. We'll organize a trio. Buddy, Bob, and Larry. Catchy name, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Larry is actually a timely addition to the Buddy and Bob Act, which is experiencing some strain. And you can imagine that, like, they've been friends for a couple years now. They're working together. And, I mean, honestly, Buddy is... I could never imagine that, LD. (sighs) Don't forget our therapy session is on Tuesday at 6. (laughs) Um. (laughs) I just, I love you. I love you, too. That's why we're still doing this and haven't killed each other. <laughs> Doesn't mean we don't want to sometimes. No. <laughs> well, when I told you the original page count for this episode, I thought you were going to kill me. I almost did. It was around this time that Buddy actually fell in love with a classmate, and she has a very cool name. I will say that. Her name was Echo. All right. Echo Elaine McGuire. Uh, Echo was undoubtedly um, important to Buddy, but she was never top priority with him. She was somewhere below music, God, beer, and sex. And that's a direct quote. Whoa. 
Buddy had a choice of going out on a date or playing his guitar. He'd be playing his guitar, Nikki Sullivan said. And uh, like I said, Nikki was eventually one of the crickets. So uh, music was important to him, though he and Echo did go steady. But I don't I don't really think that relationship lasted too long. And I do bring her up later. So Larry Wilborn was the bass player that High Pockets had recommended. It was a few years younger than Buddy and was attending Carol Thompson Jr. High School when Buddy recruited him for the Buddy and Bob Act. Retaining top billing for themselves, Buddy and Bob ordered business cards that simply read Buddy and Bob, Western and Pop, co-signing Larry to smaller type at the edges of the card and listing High Pockets as their business manager and care of KDAV. There is like no mention of the phone number or any other way to reach them. So they just got these business cards. All right. Later in 1954, Larry actually dropped out of the act and Buddy and Bob and Don, who, remember, was his friend, Don Glass, uh, joined them and then they formed the Rhythm Playboys. High Pockets drew up a contract that pretty much explicitly stated that Bobby could not perform for any more free parties and the bookings began to come in and at this point, so did the money. Which is really good because a lot of these horror stories in music is basically like, yeah, they worked their butts off and got no money for it. So they performed during remote broadcasts at store openings, sang at high school assemblies and did community shows and car lot sales. But you have to remember that not only was Buddy still underage, he was actually still in high school. And because he was doing all those different shows, he started to neglect his schoolwork. Midway through the junior year, his mother told him to start bringing books home to study. It was going to be hard for now, she said, but it wasn't for Buddy because we talked about how he was actually inexplicably, like, super intelligent. Right. He was an able researcher for his, a writer his age and actually wrote a ton of interesting papers. Years later, when his test and term themes were auctioned off at Sotheby's in the New Yorker magazine reviewed his book report on Robert Frost and pronounced it by homework standards a masterpiece. His writing style, like his later song lyrics, were simple and powerful. He was a natural. Okay. <laughs> You're going to love this. Pay attention, TJ. I'm waiting for it to get to the good part. We're still talking about him as a kid. In 1954, Buddy met Welling Jennings. Yeah. Who was 10 months younger than Buddy and just as ambitious. He actually grew up picking cotton, and in his words, it's either music or pull cotton for the rest of your life. He was a high school dropout at 14, and I actually would love to get more into Waylon on this episode, but we're actually going to be doing his own episode in future months. He's going to get done this year. Yeah. So hold tight for that. Maybe I'll do a country month. Ooh, and I'd have a month off. I would love that. Es posible. Uh, <laughs> it's still a month That's off a stretch. for me. It's a stretch to say a country month. Yeah. But back in 1954, Waylon would occasionally drive down to KDAV to catch Buddy on the Sunday party, or they'd run into each other at amateur contests held on Saturday afternoons at movie theaters around West Texas. Sometime a band would win two or three weeks running, he told author Peter, oh goodness, Peter Gurlnick in 1974. We were still playing country. There was nothing, anything else really. We were just working on a lot of shows together. So basically like they would go and just kind of sweep these contests and stuff like that. And eventually they were like, hey, could you just not come back? <laughs> Let somebody else win. <laughs> Somewhere around 1953 and 1954, Representative Columbia Records heard Buddy and Bob and that raised their hopes for a recording contract. They rounded up Sonny Curtis, 
Larry Wilburn and Don Guest and drove to Wichita Falls, Texas, which is 200 miles away from Lubbock. So they drove a pretty darn long way. And they cut a... Texas is huge. Texas is depressingly large. Depressingly large? You start driving through Texas... And you've driven like 800 miles and you're like... And you're still in Texas. You're still in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love Texas. It's beautiful. And I've been to Houston and Dallas and I love both those cities. And I know that's not like all of Texas, but I do like Texas because it's it's, other than in like the, the super big cities, there's no people there. And I like that because then my anxiety goes down. (laughs) ALD. Yeah. I'd walk across Texas with you. I would also walk across Texas with you. We'd have a lot to talk about. <laughs> of you course, it'd probably well, be Well, you know that's an old country song. Is it? Yeah. No. <laughs> and I love it. It's I listened wonderful. to Motown. You were listening to country. I was listening to Motown, so. I actually didn't know the older stuff till I got older. I'm sorry. It's waltz across Texas, not walk. It's I can't waltz. waltz, but I would walk across Texas with you. Okay. They, they drove the 200 miles to cut a demo at the Nesman Studios. The songs they recorded were Bob Montgomery's Gotta Get You Near Me Blues and Flower of My Heart. They, they never actually heard from the Columbia man, but those tapes actually do survive. So even though Columbia Records didn't give them a deal, I guess you can still have access to those two recordings, which is really impressive because this was like 1953, 1954. So they survived. Rock and roll was becoming more dominant on the airwaves, and during Buddy's senior year, which was like 1954 to 1955, the most popular jukebox hits were the Cutting Crew's Shaboom and the Penguin's Earth Angels. Do you know either one of those songs? I think I know Earth Angels. Yeah, here. It's the Crew Cuts Shaboom. Okay, so I'm going to play you the Crew Cuts Shaboom. If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart Hello, hello again Shaboom and hope we'll meet again Oh, life could be a dream If only all my precious plans would come true If you would let me spend my whole life loving you that's, oh my God. that's that saccharine sweet music that makes me kind of cringe most of the time. Oh, see, I love that. I, for some reason, I feel like that was in a movie. See, that was going to bug me. I looked it up, and that, that song was actually in Clue, which is one of my favorite films because it stars Tim Curry. Clue is excellent. That's a fantastic movie. Yes. But no, I just, I don't know. Like, it's fine if I hear it and stuff, and it makes sense in, like, a period movie or something, but... Also, I think I called it the cutting crew, and I'm sorry for that. It was the crew cuts. Whoops. Whoops. So fixing that. So sorry. So those were like the 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 big prominent jukebox songs, and so Buddy kind of started to change up his style a little bit to kind of suit the times. And he graduated high school on Friday, May 27th, 1955. Funny enough, Buddy wasn't asked to sing, despite the fact that the commencement exercise included several musical numbers, such as I Believe. I don't actually know that song. And I don't think it's the song from the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I have a feeling it's not that. No, you don't think so? No, because I don't think at graduation of uh, the phrase, a warlord that shoots people in the face, what's so scary about that is probably appropriate for that. 
Probably not. Uh, following the ceremony, a prom was held downtown at the Dunlap store, which I, in my head, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I keep thinking they held it at a tire store. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't either. Maybe it, maybe it is. Maybe it was. Maybe, maybe they have like a big floor and not a big class and they could have fun there. In the fall, Echo went away to college, enrolling in a religious school in Abilene, Texas, which is almost 200 miles away from Lubbock. And from then on, she and Buddy would only see each other on the weekends. But Larry Holly said that he brought her over to my house some, and I felt like he would marry her. And this this Larry is his brother. So his brother Larry, not the other Larry. <laughs> There's so many Larrys in the story. So many Larrys. <laughs> I'm sorry. So many Larrys. But despite Larry's opinion, the separation between the two of them kind of marked the beginning of the end of their relationship. And from this point on, her name would resonate more in his music than in his actual life. Okay. Yeah. High Pockets, there's no easy way for me to segue into this. I'm just going to like bulldoze right into it. High Pockets once said that he was the first promoter to book Elvis into Lubbock. In the beginning, Elvis's fee was only $25. I mean, it's not bad. Yeah, he had two musicians, Scotty Moore and Bill Black, but he told High Pockets he'd be glad to add to his band if High Pockets could guarantee them a regular dancing gig. And High Pockets kept booking them until Elvis's cost of asking kind of soared out of his league. And in 1955, Holly opened up for Presley at the Fair Park Coliseum in April at the Cotton Club and then again in June at the Coliseum. And according to legend, so I... I only found like maybe two places that actually had this story. So take it for what it's worth. But either way, it's a cool story. According to legend, Elvis was super late to the concert and Buddy stayed on and blew the roof off the place. Yeah. By that time, he had incorporated into his band Larry Welburn on the stand-up bass and Allison on the drums. As his style shifted from C&W to rock and roll... Due to seeing Presley's performances and hearing his music in October, Stone booked Bill Haley and his Comets and placed Holly as the opening act to be seen by Nashville scout Eddie Crandall. Impressed, Crandall persuaded Grand Old Opry manager Jim Denny to seek a recording contract for Holly. Now, in some things I read that they were only interested in Holly as a solo act, but Buddy threatened to put the deal off if they didn't cut Bob in. But when Bob heard what was going on, he bowed out of the deal. That's respectable. Which I thought was really sweet. It was like, yeah. Okay. So they sent in the demo tape, which Denny forwarded to Paul Cohen to sign the band to Decca Records in February 1956. In the contract, Decca misspelled Holly's surname, which was H-O-L-L-E-Y, as H-O-L-L-Y. And then from then on, he was known as Buddy Holly, as we now know him. At this time, he also made what he called the biggest mistake in his life, and that was letting High Pockets go as his manager. Womp womp. Yep. On January 26, 1956, Holly attended his first formal recording session, which was produced by Owen Bradley. And I, for some reason, like I was reading that, and that name kept gnawing at me, but I didn't have an opportunity to kind of dig more into him. But I think he is one of those big producers. Oh, yeah. So Owen Bradley was, he was a musician and he was a record producer. So, like, he, along with, like, Chet Atkins and Bob Ferguson, Bill Porter and Don Law, so they were kind of the chief architects in the 50s and 60s of the Nashville sound in country music and in rockabilly. So they're, so basically Owen Bradley working with Buddy Holly at this time was really important for Holly. 
Okay, cool. Thank you for that. Because it was bugging me and I just, I was chopping so much so I don't remember if I actually wrote it in or just didn't have the opportunity to look it up. Yeah, I think I brought him up briefly in the Patsy Cline episode because we were talking about the Nashville sound. So maybe that's why maybe that familiar. clicked to you. Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. So he actually attended two more sessions in Nashville, but with the producer selecting the session musicians and arrangements, Holly became increasingly frustrated by his lack of creative control. And we've talked about that in almost every episode of this podcast, I feel like. Let the artists be the artists. Yeah, there's a reason why you wanted them. Yes. In April 1956, Decca released Blue Days, Black Nights as a single with Love Me on the B-side. Denny included Holly on a tour as the opening act for Fair and Young. During the tour, they were promoted as Buddy Holly and the Two-Tones. Again, bad name. Terrible name. While later Decca called them Buddy Holly and the Three Tunes. Even worse name. Even worse. <laughs> the label later released Holly's second single, Modern Don Juan, backed with You Are My One Desire. Neither single made an impression. On January 22, 1957, Decca informed Holly that his contract would not be renewed, but insisted that he could not record the same songs for anyone else for five years. Yeah, and see, here's the thing. Sometimes the labels are right. With, like, Patsy Cline, she wanted, she didn't want to do the crooning thing, but that made her career. With many, many other artists, though, generally the labels and execs stepping in and dictating what they want you to do generally tanks someone's career. Um, so I'm not surprised that yet, another, yet again the label wants to drop them yeah. because they're not letting them do what they do best. But I think it was probably a good thing because Holly was so frustrated by not having that freedom right. that he, he was probably grateful that he was dropped. Right. Um, I think at this point it's important to know that we really haven't touched on a lot of Buddy Holly's like well-known songs. And there's a reason for that. I, but I wanted to point out that Donna by Richie Valens, which we I think we played that. But I that I don't know that we played it, but yeah, oh, did you play it at the end of that? I might have. No, I played La Bamba at the end of it. Okay. Um, but Donna was based on a real person, and one of Buddy Holly's biggest hits was Peggy Sue. She's also a real person. Oh, really? Yes. Her name was uh, Peggy Sue Jaron. I think I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, so I apologize. Let, so let me play a little bit of that. Pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue. Oh, Peggy. <laughs> this is my music, though. Like, th this is I know, this is in, your jam. This is, you're in my hood now. <laughs> so, Peggy Sue, there, the whole story basically was Buddy was in a hurry at one of the performance areas that he was working at. And so he ran out of the green room carrying like an amp and a guitar and he just slammed into her. Whoops. Like, literally ran into her and he looked up and he was like oh oh god she's beautiful she's blonde but peggy actually got a crush on jerry and would stand in the band room and watch him play the drums 
Peggy, Jerry, Buddy, and Echo would go out on double dates when she would come back home for college. But eventually Peggy and Jerry broke up, uh, but they would get back together later on. So I feel like maybe Buddy might have had kind of a crush on her, but I don't think they ever actually dated. Or maybe it was just a good sign. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, He might have, though. So Holly, of course, was unhappy with the results of his time with Decca, and he was inspired by the success of Buddy Knox's Party Doll and Jim Bowen's I'm Sticking With You, and visited Norman Petty, who had produced and promoted both of those records. Together with Allison, bassist Joe B. Malden, and rhythm guitarist Nikki Sullivan, he went to Petty Studio in Clovis, New Mexico, and the group recorded a demo of That'll Be the Day. Okay, that's a Great song. song. I have it already pulled. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. Well, when you come back and we do that too. So, yeah, that was That'll Be the Day. I love that song. I actually like that song, too. I actually like the Buddy Holly hits because they're not the, like, saccharine sweet stuff that I just... Those are the sound effects that I'm talking about in my conversation. (laughs) Uh, But but it's got that little bit of rockabilly going on. So I actually like Buddy Holly's stuff from that time. Like, that's the kind of stuff I like from that era. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. It was like the the country and then that rockabilly and the blues stuff, like an R&B. That's what I enjoy. I didn't like the pop, saccharine, sweet. Blah. Yeah. No. So on those, he started playing the lead guitar, and he he could achieve the sound that he desired. Petty became his manager and then sent the record to Brunswick Records in New York City. Holly was actually still under contract with Decca and could not release the record under his names, so a band name was used. Allison proposed the name Crickets, so that's where that name came from. Much better yeah, than the two tones or the three tunes. Yeah, well, because the Crickets, okay, being from the South, the sound of cicadas and crickets are yeah. some of the most beautiful and peaceful sounds to me. Oh, they're gorgeous. I love them. So that name brings up just... Good feelings and like quiet, peace, peaceful feelings that I, I, yeah, cricket's better name. Sorry. Yeah, way better. <laughs> Brunswick gave Holly a basic agreement to release That'll Be the Day, leaving him with both artistic control and financial responsibilities for future recordings. So that's good. Impressed with the demo, the label's executives released it without recording a new version. I'm looking for someone to love was the B side. The single was credited to the crickets. Petty and Holly later learned that Brunswick was a subsidiary of DECA, which legally cleared future recordings under the name Buddy Holly, which that's also good news, right? Yeah. Recordings credited to the crickets would be released on Brunswick, while recordings under Holly's name would be released on another subsidiary label, Coral Records. So basically all of that was still under the umbrella of DECA. So legally, he's... (laughs) That's so complicated. It is, and I put it under because it's really important to understand why he's Buddy Holly, Buddy Holly, and the crickets, the crickets. Like, there's so many reasons. No, 
it's very important to understand that, yeah. Yeah. That'll Be the Day was released on May 27th, 1957, and Petty booked Holly and the Crickets for a tour with Irving Feld, who had noticed the band after That'll Be the Day appeared on the R&B charts. They booked them for appearances in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and New York City. The band was booked to play New York's Apollo Theater. Oh, my. On August 16th through the 22nd. During the opening performances, the group did not impress the audience. But they were accepted after including Bo Diddley. By the end of their run at the Apollo, That'll Be the Day was climbing the charts. Encouraged by the success of the single, Petty started to prepare two albums to be released. A solo album for Holly and another for the Crickets. Holly appeared on American Bandstand, hosted by Dick Clark on ABC on August 26th before leaving New York. The band actually befriended the Everly Brothers. That'll be the day topped the U.S. bestsellers in store charts on September 23rd and was number one on the U.K. single charts for three weeks in November. On September... (laughs) On September 20th... (laughs) Sorry. Is that one of those good sounds? Yep. (laughs) On September 20th, Coral released Peggy Sue, backed with Every Day. I'm not going to play Every Day now because that's actually going to be the end song because that is probably my favorite Buddy Holly song, so that's what we're ending the show with. Um, And Holly was credited as the performer. By October, Peggy Sue had reached number three on the Billboard's chart and number two on the R&B chart, and it peaked at number six on the UK Singles chart. As the success of the song grew, it it brought more attention to Holly with the band at the time being billed as Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And I think that's like what stuck. Because that's when I was growing up, my mom would say, this is Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah. No matter what song it was, it was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah. In the last week of September, the band members flew back to Lovick to visit their families. Holly's high school girlfriend, Echo, had left him for a fellow student. Womp womp. Aside from McGuire, Holly had a relationship with a Lubbock fan, June Clark. After Clark ended their relationship, Holly realized the importance of his relationship with McGuire and considered his time with Clark and his relationship with Clark a temporary one. Meanwhile, for their return to recording, Petty arranged sessions in Oklahoma City where he was performing with his own band. While the band drove to the location, the producers actually set up a makeshift studio. Uh, The rest of the songs needed for the album were recorded, and Petty later dubbed the material in Clovis. The resulting album was the Chirping Crickets, released on November 27, 1957. It reached number five on the UK album charts, and in October, Brunswick released the second single by the Crickets, Oh Boy, which is great, and not fade away. And do you want to play Oh Boy? All of my love, all of my kissing, you don't know what you've been missing, oh boy. Oh boy, when you're with me, oh boy. Oh boy, the whole world can see that you are oh meant for me. All of my life, I've been waiting. Tonight there'll be no hesitating, oh boy. Oh boy, when you're with me, oh boy. Oh boy, the whole world can see that you are oh oh meant for me. I love, I love that, that song. song. <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a soda. Uh, I'll give you one. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh boy, is it just so energetic and happy, and I love it, and just makes me smile every time I hear it. So, um, they had not fade away on the B side. It reached number ten on the pop charts and thirteen on the R and B charts. Holly and the Crickets performed "That'll Be the Day" and Peggy Sue on the Ed Sullivan Show 
on December 1st, 1957. Following the appearance, Nikki, Sel- Nikki Sullivan left the group because of the intense touring. On December 29th, Holly and the Crickets performed Peggy Sue on the Arthur Murray Party. Woo-woo! Woo. Uh, on January 8th, 1958, Holly and the Crickets joined America's Greatest Teenage Recording Stars Tour. That rolls off the tongue easy. Oh, yeah. On Jan- easy. Yeah, super easy. On January 25th, Holly recorded Ray Vaughn, and then he made his second appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show singing Oh Boy. He departed to perform in Honolulu, Hawaii on January 27th, and then started a tour of Australia and the United Kingdom playing 50 shows in 25 days. That's two shows a day. It might be more because it was Australia and the UK. So there'd have to be downtime between them. <sighs> My goodness gracious. Let the boys man. sleep. Yeah. That same month, which was March, his debut solo album, Buddy Holly, was released. Upon their return to the United States, Holly and the Crickets joined Alan Freed's Big Beat Show Tour for 41 dates. Which we have to do he an episode on Alan just, Freed. Yes, we do. So good. So good. We ju- I mean, this kid is just going and going and going. He went to hyperspeed. Uh, in April, Decca released That'll Be the Day, featuring the songs recorded with Bradley during his early Nashville sessions. A new recording session in Clovis was arranged in May. Holly hired Tommy Alsup, remember that name, to play lead guitar. The sessions produced recordings of It's So Easy and Heartbeat. Holly was impressed by Alsup and invited him to join the Crickets. In June, Holly traveled alone to New York for a solo recording session. Without the Crickets, he chose to be backed by a jazz and R&B band recording Now We're One and Bobby Darren's Early in the Morning. I love Bobby Darren. <laughs> love Bobby Darren. There'll be an episode of him and and for sure. I will probably have to do that because oh, I love Bobby Darren so much. <laughs> um, I'll let you have him. <laughs> <laughs> During a visit to the offices of Pier South, Holly met Mary Elena Santiago. Oh. Yep. A señorita. Born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Mary Elena's mother died when she was 22 years old. Her mother was 22. And in 1953, her father sent her to live with her aunt, Provi Garcia, in New York City. Santiago worked as a receptionist for the music publisher, Peer Music. He asked her out on their first meeting and then promptly got her aunt's permission. Five hours into their date, Buddy handed a rose to Maria and asked her to marry him. Aww. The wedding took place on August 15th, 1958, less than two months later from the first time that they ever met, and they were actually married in Buddy's hometown of Lubbock, Texas. Cute. They settled down in Lubbock until Buddy broke up with his band, and we'll get to that, Um, but they moved to New York City, and Petty disapproved of the marriage, and I hear this a lot in in the older, in like the olden days. Unfortunately, it still happens. Where they disapproved of the marriage and they advised Holly to keep it secret to avoid upsetting his fans. So, appear to be single, Petty, well, his manager, didn't approve of this marriage. There's also, you know, racial tensions and interracial marriage and... Yeah. Whatever. But the big thing was, if Holly's married, he can lose his fans. Right. And that was like... Well, that too. Yeah, yeah. That too. You see that a lot still. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dang. Petty's reaction created friction with Holly, who had started to question Petty's bookkeeping. So, again, like, we've talked about this so many times where, like, artists' rights are kind of abused. 
Like, oh yeah, they they have all the talent, the drive, and then the people behind them take all the money. So, yeah, watch your books, peeps. Yeah, know your math and watch your books. So the crickets, frustrated because he controlled all the proceeds from the band, were also in conflict with Petty. So he's got both Buddy that's mad at him and the crickets that are mad at him. Yeah, you should always just watch the books and like make sure you know where all the money is going. Yeah. You know, no sketchy charges. Yeah. So Holly and Santiago frequented many of the New York music venues including the Village Gate, Blue, Na- uh, Blue Note, Village Vanguard, and Johnny Johnson's. And I lived in New York, like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, and I don't know if I have heard of any of those. I was more of a limelight kind of girl growing up. You think? Well, I went through a phase where the limelight was like my place. But Webster Hall, that was the other thing. If we have any New York listeners that went to Webster Hall, in 2001 to 2003 give me a shout out because webster hall was my jam wait is the limelight a venue yes the oh. limelight. okay so <laughs> i thought you meant like you like to be no the, the limelight. <laughs> no limelight like, was a converted <laughs> church it was an old church and i think that it's it's been a lot of different things over the the time but when i was there it was limelight and it was kind of a rave club which i thought was kind of cool because it was in a church so the acoustics were kind of awesome. Cool. Yeah, it would be. And then they had the high ceiling, so they had these really great light rigs and stuff like that. So it was a really cool place, and it was right by my house, and so it was um, Webster Hall. They were both in, like, walking distance. So oh. When we went to Galway, there was a restaurant that we went to that was, like, must have been a converted church or something like it. It was really cool vibe in there and, like, had some stained glass on the floors and had, like, the art, the carved art. Like, what's that called? The panels? The triptychs? Yeah. So that place was really, really cool to look at. I would have loved to have a drink there. Food was not so good. Mm. But it was a really cool place, so I'm glad we went. That's a bummer. Uh, Santiago later said that Holly was learning fingerstyle flamenco guitar. He would also visit her aunt to play the piano that she had there. Nice. He had actually planned a collaboration between soul singers and rock and roll, and he wanted to make an album with Ray Charles and Mahalia Jackson. Oh, cool. Yeah. That um, awesome. It never came to fruition, well, of course. Unfortunately, so. yeah. That would have been awesome. Yeah. He also had ambitions to work in film and registered for acting class with Lee Strasberg at the Actor Studio, which was, if I'm not mistaken, the same one that Marilyn Monroe went to. Okay. Which would have been about the same time-ish, I think. Okay. You can at me. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Clue us in. Let us know if we're right or wrong. Yeah. Santia, because I'm just thinking about this stuff off my head. Yeah. I'm trying to make connections in my head. This is not in our research. (laughs) Yeah. It's not in the research. Sorry. Uh, Santiago accompanied Holly on tours. This is an important detail. So she would go on tour with him. But to hide her marriage to Holly, because remember we were talking about how it was a thing back then to hide marriages so that it would they would still be appealing to young girls, young girls thinking they were single men. And I keep bringing this movie up, but I think they did the same thing with Liv Tyler's character and that thing you do like they gave her a job so that she could be with her boyfriend. So right. Uh, so to hide her marriage to Holly, she was presented as the cricket's secretary. She took care of the laundry and equipment set up and collected the concert revenues. And Santiago kept the money for the band 
instead of their habitually transferring it to Petty in New Mexico. And she and her aunt, Provi, executive of the Latin American Music Department at Pierce Southern, convinced Holly that Petty was paying the band's royalties from the Coral Brunswick's to his own company account. Ooh. Yeah. Yowza. Holly planned to retrieve the royalties from Petty and later to fire him as the manager and the producer. And at the recommendation of the Everly Brothers, Holly hired lawyer Harold Orenstein to negotiate the royalties. The problems with Petty were triggered after he was unable to pay Holly. And because Holly's royalties originated in New York and were directed out of state, the payments were actually frozen until the dispute was settled. So worst. Yeah. And here's the thing. As an actress, I was an actress in New York. And I did a TV show called The Chappelle Show. And a lot of people know that show. And it's weird because I actually have to pay extra on my taxes because I still get royalties from doing that show. But they originate out of entertainment partners in New York City. Right. And it is a pain in the butt. So you had to pay the state tax from New York. Yes. Uh. Yeah. Luckily, I have a finance guy that like just says, pay this and I'll get it to the right place. But before, it was a real headache because I'd have... Two different states that technically I quote unquote worked out of. So, right. Even though it was just a royalty. Yeah. And it's that a sucks. headache. So I, I, I understand why there was a hiccup there because he's out of New York, Texas, New Mexico. All this money is like bouncing around. So so he actually ended his association with Petty in December 1958. The band members actually kept him on as their managers. And so he actually just split from the crickets. Oh. Which were why the crickets weren't going to be playing the winter dance party. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. So Petty was still holding the money from the royalties, forcing Holly to form a new band and return to touring. Holly was vacationing with his wife in Lubbock and visited Jennings radio station, and we're talking about Wailing Jennings, in December 1958. And I don't know, I know you did some digging for the Big Bopper episode, but I did this for both Richie and for Buddy I could not find what the nexus was for the winter dance party. What do you like, mean the nexus? I, like the beginning of it. Like where did it start? Who what? Who had the brainchild? Was it Buddy that did it? Like I couldn't find any information about who did what. Like we know who the. What do who, you do? You mean like who organized it? Who, who put organized it together? It? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I didn't find that either. I couldn't find it. I was trying to find information out about the winter dance party, and basically it's. It just it, appeared. It, it just appeared. It's still going on now, and it's the Buddy Holly Winter Dance Party, and they have well, impersonators, but... And it could be something where it was just a tour that they were doing, and then because of the tragedy, they continued it annually, possibly. Yeah. Um, But I'm not really sure where it originated. Please, listeners, if you are hearing this and you know, let us know. Please because- let us know, because I couldn't find it anywhere. I did so many deep dives. I checked my books. I... You know, it's and I'm a research hound. So after taking a quick pause to do some research, <laughs> we cannot figure out what the origin of the original winter dance party was in terms of like if it was a radio station that put it together, if it was the bands that put it together, who put it together, or if there was like a promoter, or if one of if, or if Buddy Holly did it, or what? Right, like who? If you know, please let us know because we really do. We really tried to find this out. I mean, seriously, like <laughs> I have three books on Buddy Holly. It's not in any of those. I, I, I just don't know. I'm at a loss. Yeah. And I've been digging on the current. We did a little bit of digging on the current dance party and all this stuff. I did, however, find the origin of the current winter dance party 
that is an annual tribute to the day the music died with Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. Um, this has been going on actually since 1979, I believe. And what's crazy is it's the only one that is endorsed by Buddy Holly's wife. Yeah, by all three of them, actually, all three estates. So here's a, a little bit, and I'm reading this off of the Surf Ballrooms page. Um, or I'm sorry. Yeah, they have a they have a page for the winter dance party. Um, so it said the Surf Ballrooms winter dance party... The event began after an on-air jest by a Clear Lake radio personality known as the Mad Hatter back in the late 70s on local Clear Lake radio station KZEV. The Mad Hatter, whose real name is Daryl Hensley, was doing his show one day when he told listeners, there was a time warp in my studio and Buddy Holly has just walked in. He he pretended to have an on-air conversation with the rock and roll icon Buddy, suggested the idea of holding a memorial concert at the surf on the 20th anniversary of his death. And the Mad Hatter told him he would make it happen. So, so he basically initiated this now annual tribute to these three people that tours around the country um, and has since 1979. So, and actually LD and I, in the process of doing this research found tickets to the dance party that's happening not that far away from us at the end of this week so stay tuned we may go we might go we may go who knows that'll be the day baby (laughs) a good way to tie in a buddy holly song right hey you're not the only one that can do a segue lady Oh, I'm the queen of segway segway segways segways i'm the queen of segways speaking of segways (laughs) back to the story (laughs) Ha <laughs> Boom! Did it again. <laughs> Fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the start of the winter dance party, he assembled a band consisting of Waylon Jennings on the electric bass, Tommy Alsop on guitar, and Carl Bunch, who was on drums. Which is weird, because Carl didn't have a seat on the plane. No, he did not. It was just for Tommy and Waylon. Maybe he didn't like Carl. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild speculation. Please do not at me on that. She's kidding, guys. I'm just making a joke. Holly, Holly. Maybe Carl needed to stay with his drums. He just loves his drums. He's got to ride on the bus with his drums. Yeah. Uh, Holly and Jennings left for New York City, arriving on January 15th, 1959. The winter dance party tour began in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23rd, 1959. The amount of travel involved created logistical problems as the distance between venues had not been considered when scheduling performances, which was crazy for the amount that they were touring and they didn't take into consideration, like, it's going to take us three days to drive here. But you have a schedule in two days. Like, that, that, it seems like that sort of logistical problem. It's all around the upper Midwest. I mean, it's not that far in between venues unless you take into account, I don't know, the horrible weather. Well, not only that, but adding to the problems, the unheated tour bus broke down twice in the freezing weather with dire consequences. Well, maybe here's the answer is that his drummer, Carl, was hospitalized for frostbite before his toes suffered while aboard the bus. Oh, so maybe that's it. Yeah. Maybe uh, he didn't need the extra seat. He didn't need the extra seat because he had to get a different drummer. Because his feet were falling off. Oh, poor that Carl. poor guy. I'm so sorry I made a joke that Buddy didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> 
But he was on the bus. Like, that tells you how cold it was Yeah, on the bus. So imagine how much it is, how cold it is outside the bus. Yeah. So, And at this point, some of this information might seem familiar to you from the last two episodes if you listened. But if but not, we still need to include it. Thank God this is almost over with. <laughs> it's just, this is like LD's worst nightmare. Yeah, we're getting to my part. nightmare right now. Yep. So, and, and I end on my actual nightmare. Oh, wonderful. On an, on an actual nightmare. I end this episode on an actual nightmare. Lovely. So, hold. And oh. then she's going to go take a nap. And then I'm, go- <laughs> and then I'm just going to take two Xanax and go to sleep for a little bit. <laughs> On February 2nd, before their appearance in Clear Lake, Iowa, Holly charted a four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza airplane for Jennings Alsop and himself from Dwyer Flying Service in Mason City, which is also in Iowa. Holly's idea was to depart for the following show at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake and fly to the next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota via Fargo. And uh, you talked about that on the Big Bopper episode, so. Yeah, well, and also Richie Valens, because I went to school up in Fargo, um, so basically, there's a little airport in Fargo, and Fargo, North Dakota, is just on the other side of the river from Moorhead in Minnesota. So yeah. it's like right next door. So that would doing that, like taking that plane, would allow them to get some rest, wash their clothes, and avoid being on the frozen bus again. So yeah, I mean, I get where he was coming from with this, but it's still a nightmare. Well, now, <laughs> the, for you, yes. Um, yeah, so if you haven't yet listened to the other episodes on this... Go Rich, listen to them. Go listen to them, first of all, because they were really good, in our opinion, in our totally unbiased opinions. But Richie Valens ended up on the plane after winning a coin toss against Alsup for his seat. And Jennings gave up his seat to the Big Bopper because... Bopper was actually really sick at the time and needed to see a doctor before their next show. So if you haven't yet listened to those episodes, spoiler alert, but it's important to know how that switch was made. Yeah. So the pilot, Roger Peterson's took off in inclement weather, although he was not certified to fly by instruments alone. And so that was what we were talking about in the other two episodes was... Yeah, in the Big Bopper episode, we went into more detail on that. And he was on an 18-hour workday already. And so... Did you find 18? I found 20. Regardless, long day. Long day. Long day. A long day of doing something that takes a lot of focus. In really bad weather. Yeah. So shortly after 12.55 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959's Holly, Valens, Richardson, and Peterson, and then... The big bopper was is Richardson. Is Richardson, yeah. if you're wondering, were killed instantly when the aircraft crashed into a frozen cornfield five miles north of Mason City, Iowa. Uh, shortly after takeoff, the three musicians who were ejected from the fuselage upon impact suffered severe head and chest injuries. Holly and Santiago had only been married for six months at the time of his death. She learned of his death from reports on the TV. That sucks. Yeah. A widow after only six months of marriage. She suffered a miscarriage shortly after. Yeah. Reportedly due to psychological trauma. Because I was going to say, wasn't she just very short? Like, she was only like two months pregnant or something like that at the time? Something like that. I mean, they were only married for six months. So at max, she was six months pregnant. Yeah, I think I... Well, no, I think I found it in my research. I think she was two months when when he passed away. Yeah. 
But because of her miscarriage, in the months following the accidents, the authorities implemented the policy against announcing victims' names until after the families are informed. So that's like a common thing now. So good and bad, maybe? Not some, I don't know. No, it's a good thing because they won't release victim names until after the family has been informed. Good news out of tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great thing. We saw that, you know, a couple weeks ago with Kobe. Yeah. Where no one had told Vanessa and and she was finding out on Twitter. So it, again, isn't that then illegal? Well, it wasn't Well, it's not uh, it was t- it was TMZ. It was it's TMZ and I have a serious issue with TMZ. Yeah, I don't blame you. She actually did not attend the funeral and has never visited the gravesite. She later told the Avalanche Journal, in a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well when he had left. I was two weeks pregnant. There's two our weeks. Answer. There two weeks. Was. Yeah. And I wanted Buddy to stay with me, but he had scheduled this tour. Wait. Oh, yeah. So, so she was like a month pregnant because she was two weeks pregnant when he left. Yeah. So. So, yeah. That. This was the only time I wasn't with him. And I blame myself because I know that if I had only gone along, Buddy would have never gotten onto that airplane. Holly's funeral was held on February 7th, 1959 at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Lubbock, which was his church that he grew up in and was baptized in. The service was officiated by Ben D. Johnson, who had presided over his wedding just months earlier. The pallbearers were Jerry Allison, Joby Malden, Nikki Sullivan, Bob Montgomery, and Sonny Curtis. And we have mentioned every one of those names in this episode, so you can see how they had that lasting effect on his life. Right. Even from early life. Don had known him for so many, like, Don had known him since they were in junior high, I think, junior high or elementary school. So they, they had a friendship that lasted a lifetime. Right. Some sources say that Phil Everly, one of the, one half of the Everly brothers, was also a pallbearer, but he said at the time that he attended the funeral, but was not a pallbearer. Wailing Jennings was unable to attend because of his commitment to the still-touring Winter Dance Party. Why is it still going on? I mean, I, I, I get it, but I don't get it. Different time, you know. Holly's body was interred in the city of Lubbock Cemetery in the eastern part of the city. His headstone carries the correct spelling of his surname, which was H-O-L-L-E-Y, and a carving of his Fender Stratocaster guitar. Aww. Okay, and here's TJ's favorite part. Fun facts. Woohoo. We need them after darkness. Yeah. Well, I go fun and then I go directly back into darkness. Lovely. (laughs) Got to end it on a bummer, right? He only had three (laughs) albums that were released, which were The Chirping Crickets, Buddy Holly, and That'll Be the Day. But there have been 29 compilation albums. Which is just ridiculous. You release like five songs and they find they find a way to make a new album. It's ridiculous. Like how? <laughs> um, well, he did have a lot of recordings and stuff. So I, there's a there's a cap, though. Twenty nine is a lot of compilation albums. Holly's right. life story inspired the Buddy Holly story, which was 1978. Its lead actor, Gary Busey, received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actor. So so Gary Busey was in the Buddy Holly story and. My mom loves that movie, but it was widely criticized by the rock press and Holly's friends and family for its inaccuracies. Uh, this led Paul McCartney, whose MPL Communications by then actually controlled the publishing rights to Buddy Holly's sound catalog, to produce his own documentary about Holly in 1985 titled The Real Buddy Holly Story. Burn. 
Yeah. In 1987, musician Marshall Crenshaw portrayed Buddy Holly in the movie La Bamba. And he actually looks like him. Like, if you watch clips from that movie, it is a, a pretty good side-by-side comparison. Ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly. Uh-oh, and you're Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, I, that, was, <laughs> that was actually a fun fact, and I took it out because it made it 15 pages as opposed to 14 pages. But yes, oh, come on. Weezer's first breakout hit was Buddy Holly. Well, here's something that's up my alley, which was, it's called Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, a jukebox musical depicting Holly's life. And it's actually credited as being the first of its kind. The musical opened up in the late 1980s and had its most recent UK tour occur in uh, 2019. And that's, the jukebox musical is like the Jersey Boys or Mamma Mia or Motown, like those guys. But Buddy was the first of its kind. So that was kind of cool. Okay. And this is another thing that's up my alley. Steve Buscemi actually cameoed as Buddy Holly in the 1950s-themed restaurant employed in Quentin Tarantino's 1994 film, Pulp Fiction. And we know I am a Tarantino file. I like Steve Buscemi. And I do like... I mean, I like Tarantino. I don't really... I'm not, like, crazy about his movies. And I don't know that I've ever seen Pulp Fiction all the way through. Well, Steve Buscemi, I have a... Legend. I have a total respect for Steve Buscemi because he used to be a volunteer firefighter in New York City. And to tie it back to the beginning of this episode, on 9-11, he actually went down to his old firehouse, volunteered again, and helped with cleanup. Aw, that's cool. So, total respect to Steve Buscemi. Buscemi, you're a stand-up guy. We come be you. on the podcast. We Jensen you. Come, come be on the podcast. Come we, hang out with us. Yeah, we're fun. Yeah. <laughs> Holly, okay, this is, this is, all of these have something to do with something I loved when I was a child. <laughs> Holly was depicted in an episode of the science fiction television program Quantum Leap, which, okay, then. After I wrote out this, this um, trivia, I went on a mad search to find how to see Quantum Leap again, because I loved that show. My sister loved that show. Oh my she god, was so good! And I also love Sliders, which is kind of the same thing. But oh man, but the episode was kind of titled "How the Test Was Won." Holly's identity is only revealed at the end of the episode. Doctor Sam Beckett, which is played by Scott Bakula, influences Buddy Holly to change his lyrics from "Piggy Piggy Suey" to "Peggy Sue," setting up, yep, setting up for Holly's future hit song. Holly's follow up hit song is featured in the 1986 Francis Ford Coppola film Peggy Sue Got Married in which a 43-year-old mother and housewife facing a divorce which was played by Kathleen Turner is thrust back in time and given the chance to change the courses of her life and side note that is my mother's favorite movie of all time okay and I think that's where I got my love of Nicolas Cage okay he is also in that film Fair enough. And you'll appreciate this. I had you in mind when I wrote this. In 2006, the country band The Dixie Chicks. Hey, I know them. Mentioned Buddy Holly in their song Lubbock or Leave It. Yes, they did. I listened to that song today on the way back from training. Yep. The lead singer Natalie Maines and Holly share the same hometown, which is Lubbock, Texas. And one of my personal favorite people, Marcus Parks from the last podcast on the left, is also from Lubbock. So Lubbock is making some good people. Keep pumping those awesome folks out, Lubbock, Texas. Okay, I'm going to take a couple deep breaths because um, this is my personal nightmare. See, you should have just done the nightmare par- portion and then all the fun facts. I am not that smart. <laughs> so then you don't go to bed, you don't go to take your nap while you yeah. <laughs> still have like 
scary things in your brain. Okay, I'm going to put this down for a second and tell you some off-the-cuff kind of stuff because I, if I had left it in, it, this is what made it 19 pages. So I'm going to try to boil this information down to the most concise way that I can say this. But apparently there was a music producer and I think his name was Jim Meeks. And he was kind of the UK equivalent of Phil Spector. Okay. So he was a big deal. And he got into the occult. Like he was interested in the occult. And he was like trying to use tarot and Luigi boards to pick up chicks. Smooth. Yeah. Real smooth, dude. So he invited three of his friends over to have like a party where they would do tarot cards and stuff. Automatic writing. If you don't know what that is, it's... You put a piece of paper down and you have a pen in your hand and your hand is loose. And basically, you open yourself up to having spirits be able to use your vessel to write out messages. Please don't do that crap. No, automatic writing is totally fine. Ouija boards, no. Ouija boards, no. How is how is automatic writing and like opening yourself because up to spirits more like we're better than a Ouija board? Because you can ground yourself and use things to protect yourself. You can do that with a Ouija board. No, too. you can't. Yeah, you can. you, no, because you don't know what you're opening up in the Ouija board. You can get anything. Oh, it's enough. the chat roulette of, fair <laughs> enough. of the occult. Fair enough. So anyway, he was doing automatic writing and, and tarot readings with his friends. And apparently the note that came across was, Buddy Holly will die February 3rd. And so this was in, This was in 1958. I love so, how he's using this to pick up chicks. Like, I'm so turned on when somebody's like, hey, baby, want me to tell you when you're going to die? <laughs> no. But but what happened was he, this was in 1958. And so he called radio stations, managers, uh, recording engineers, management. Like, he was trying to get to Buddy Holly. And so finally he got a note to Buddy Holly. And there's no... No one knows if he just like brushed it off as a crazy person or like ever had another thought about it. But apparently he he didn't pay attention to it. And so February 3rd came and went and Meeks was a little bit more calm. Okay. And that was 1958. 1959 rolls around. February 3rd rolls around. And then it happens. So that was spooky for me. Yeah. So I tried to condense that. I know there are a ton of more details because literally that was like five pages of details that I had gotten out and I just kind of tried to boil it down to its most interesting parts. So please don't be upset with me if I left out a detail or two. But I think you're fine because I'm the one that told you like that was enough to tell that story without five pages of and she was wearing a black dress and he was. It wasn't. It was. It was talking about the layout of the cards and what they meant and stuff like that. Well, yeah, but that again, not this podcast. I love you. Anyway, I'm gonna have my own paranormal podcast, and you're not. And then you can talk. You then you can tell that whole story, (laughs) and it'll be a whole episode. Yeah. (laughs) See, I I just gave you fuel for your next podcast, and I'm gonna give our listeners fuel for their nightmares. Okay. Oh, wait, that wasn't the nightmare story? No, that's not the nightmare story. Oh, crap. This is a legitimate nightmare story. Oh, yeah. This is I didn't a, a, literal, to... a literal nightmare story. Yeah, because I, oh, I don't, yeah, because I didn't want you to cut, okay. This is, this is, that's what we have left here. So, <sighs> okay, go. So here's something super spooky. Shortly before leaving the winter dance party, both were shaken by disturbing but strangely prophetic dreams. 
Maria was awakened suddenly from a nightmare in which she was standing in a vast open area, much like a farm. I don't know where I was or how I got there. All of a sudden, I could hear a noise like shouting, and it got closer and closer and closer. I could see people running, 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 and shouting, They're coming, hide. Maria was convinced that she would be trampled by the onrushing mob. As the crowd parted around her, she heard a terrible noise, and she saw a descending ball of fire falling from the heavens. She was convinced that this flaming comet-like object would crush her, but it passed by her. She heard a terrible crash in the distance, witnessed a huge explosion, much like that of a plane crash. As she approached the site, she could see a great burning hole in the ground. At this point, she was awakened by Buddy. As Buddy tried to comfort her, he related to Maria a dream that he had had just moments before in which he was flying in a small airplane with his brother, Larry, and her. For some reason, Larry convinced Buddy to leave Maria on the top of a building, but reassured her that they would soon return to pick her up. The dream created so much guilt within Buddy that he broke into tears, saying that he just couldn't understand why he left her and why she wasn't with him. In a few short weeks, both of these dreams would come back to haunt her. Ugh. That sucks. Didn't you say uh, Valens had a dream, a kind of a prophetic type of a dream too, right? Yeah. And he also had a fear of flying. So. Yeah. Oy. No bueno. So that concludes our series on the day the music died. So we'll let you guys know if we actually get to make it to the winter dance party because I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. It's in Lancaster. Yeah. It's not, it's not that far. terribly far. Yeah. I say let's do it. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether or not we can go on Friday. I think I can go on Friday. I'm unemployed. <laughs> well, okay. So it's a matter of whether or not I can go on Friday. <laughs> yeah. We also realized that we kind of forgot to mention something kind of important at the top of this episode. <laughs> it's uh, super important and we're really, really, really excited. We're super stoked. Remember, we kind of mentioned you're gonna you've seen a few changes happening. So you you saw our new logo, yes, and hopefully you adore it as much as we do. We love we it. We love it's the awesome. new logo. So cool, and it's colors it's and colors, pretty colors, pretty colors with a skull and, and candles. candles, and it looks like it's illuminated. It's really pretty. I'm sure you've seen it pop up on your player at this point. Like, really cool. We'd like to thank Peter for that. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. But so, LD and I, we got picked up to be the newest member of the Pantheon podcast family. Yay, Pantheon! Yes. So, if you don't know what that is, they are a really cool network of podcasts, all related to rock and roll music and music history in some way, shape, or form. If you go to their website and check them out, you'll see all of the different podcasts that are in that lineup that we are now a new member of. And that's like rock and roll archaeology, rock and roll librarian, uh, real rock, vinyl snob, rock candy, who cares about the rock hall well, they we have, don't need to list them all. No. But there's some really cool ones out there um, that are p also part of this network. So, you know, along with the ones that LD has already listed, there's ones like the Muses that focus on the women behind the scenes of rock and roll history from like 
groupies to lovers to managers to wives, all of that, which is a really, really fun one. Yeah, there's some really good ones. I mean, we could talk about all 31 of them. 32 now. 32 now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so go check out some of our our sister podcasts. I'm sure that they would enjoy it, and I'm sure that you would enjoy it, because if you like this, it means that you like rock and roll and music history, so you'd probably like what they're doing, too. So that's our big news. We're super excited. So you'll still be able to find us everywhere that you find us now, so there's no, no... exclusivity move there so yeah you don't have to switch how you're listening to us for sure but But we we get things like longer episodes because we don't have to host with another company that we had a cap on for as long as we recorded so we can actually bring you longer content with more information so we're pretty stoked about that I know I am (laughs) well I know you are (laughs) (laughs) But it also means that you, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, it also may- means that you will get a little bit more of our of our side conversations to add some, our own little personal touch, as it were, like music just, clips. Yeah. We get to do music clips. We can actually we to, play you the songs that we talk about. As opposed to you having to do homework. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're, we're very, very excited and we're super honored that now we get to be with this wonderful network of like-minded people. And, you know, the guys that run the network are just incredibly sweet, wonderful folks. And uh, we're, so supportive, we're, just, yeah. we're, we're really lucky that they found us. So yeah, you'll notice some changes. They're going to be all wonderful changes. Uh, we're probably going to have uh, some big announcements coming up soon. So listen out for that because if you're in the LA area, who knows? Yeah. Hint, hint. Maybe. 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 We Anyways. <laughs> well, that's getting ahead of ourselves. So we'll stick to closing with our social that, of course, has not changed at all. At all. Uh, you can find us on our Patreon. At patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Instagram rock and roll heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And if I said those too fast, don't worry, they will be in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. As well as a link to go to our new network to check out the sister podcast. Yes. Yes. So thank you guys so much for checking us out. Check us out in the next week yeah i think it's next week yeah. yeah check us out next episode where we will be doing our opening act on rumors in rock such a fun episode that was so much fun to do so much fun <laughs> what is it march yes uh march, march we're bringing a series to you guys that i have literally had on my computer since i think the third week we started this podcast so, so basically i have to finish writing my episode so we can record yep okay mm-hmm <laughs> Could you finish that, please? I'm trying. <laughs> and thank you guys so much for checking us out. We love you all. Keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yes. Can you tuck me in? Uh, I'll, I'm going to leave that to Will. Okay. Fine. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Every day it's a getting closer. Going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Every day it's a getting faster. Everyone said go ahead and ask her. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 